We're just going to be focusing on two verses this morning, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But I'm going to read a couple of verses around those just to give some context. And if you want, you can stand with me as I read from Scripture. I'm reading from the ESV translation, one of many good translations. I'll read from Galatians 4, uh, 3 to 7, but we'll focus on verses 4 and 5. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into your hearts, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. Our Father and God, this morning, on this Christmas Eve, this Christmas Eve morning, we pray that we would further understand, better understand, or at least more greatly rejoice in the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. God made flesh. God, who is a spirit dwelling among us, that we might have life in Him. There are mysteries here that are profound that we won't be able to fully wrap our heads around, but I pray that we would have some understanding of what you have done for us and praise you for it. We pray that you would give us some understanding, Lord, cause our spirits, our hearts, rejoice in you this morning to give you praise for you are worthy not just on Christmas day but every day you are God and King we praise you Amen I'm going to start a little bit differently this morning we're going to start out with a little bit of trivia so if you want you can keep score and uh, be excited there's absolutely no prize for getting these right but I want to give you some, come back later this evening, we will give you a Christmas bag at the end of the service. There's a special reward for But I want to start with a little Christmas trivia. Some Christmas-themed trivia for you. So first question in our Christmas-themed trivia. How many ghosts appear to Scrooge in A Christmas Carol? Some of you have the right answer. I see you flashing it already. There are four, four ghosts appear Scrooge. Here's another Christmas-themed trivia question for you. In which modern-day country was the real St. Nicholas born? There was a man, a real St. Nicholas, who was a great man of faith, and he was born in the modern-day country of Turkey. Question three. Which one of Santa's reindeer has the same name as another holiday mascot? Go through the list. There it is. The answer is Cupid. Which country started the tradition of putting up a Christmas tree? The answer is Germany. If there's anything the Germans are known for, it's festive cheer. That's right. How many gifts total are given in the song The Twelve Days of Christmas? 
do the math. 364, just shy of one gift for every day of the year. 364 total. Which popular Christmas song was originally written for Thanksgiving? Jingle Bells. Some of you know that one right away. What was Frosty the Snowman's nose made out of? That's a trick one. It's a button. Yeah, not a cake. And what are the three traditional names for the three wise men? Anybody? Know? It's, it's not biblical. It's just tradition. Casper, Melchior, and Balthasar. So there you go. There, there's some Christmas-themed trivia for you. You can take that with you. You've now become smarter today. You're welcome. Those are some fun questions, trivia of Christmas. But for the rest of our time together, I want to go over three more, far more important questions for Christmas. That's our theme for this morning's sermon from Galatians 4, 4 and 5. I want to answer three crucial Christmas questions. This is more than mere trivia. This is the kind of stuff that all of us need to know. From Galatians 4, 4 and 5, three crucial Christmas questions. If, if I could be morbid for a second, all of us are going to face death and face our Creator. And my plea for you this morning is that you not meet God without having answered these questions. So I took a serious turn there for a second. I apologize. But I want to impart the importance of answering these questions, three crucial Christmas questions. It's a tongue twister. From Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And they're simple questions. When was Christ born? How was Christ born? Why was Christ born? Three very simple Christmas questions. When, how, and why was Christ born? Let's look at the first question. When was Christ born? When was Christ born? Now we have a tradition that we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, and we kind of mark that as the traditional birth date of Jesus. Of course, we don't actually know what the birth date was. I think it's a couple hundred years in the third century. Hippolytus is actually the first to name December 25th as the date of Jesus' birth. So it actually goes back a while, that tradition. But we don't know the exact date of Jesus' birth. We have generally the years in which he was born. We know he was born under the reign of King Herod the Great, who died in 4 B.C., so Jesus was born at least four years before Christ. Um, somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., because we know Herod had all the young bo- children, young boys, slaughtered from zero to two years old, trying to eliminate the Messiah. So we can deduce from that, when Herod died, 4 B.C., that it was somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. that Jesus Christ was born. But that's really not the most important uh, date or answer when we talk about when was Christ born. What Scripture tells us in Galatians 4, Christ was born when the fullness of time had come. Really kind of a beautiful phrase. When the fullness of time had come, Christ was born. Which is another way of saying, when creation was ready. 
almost like saying, when the universe was expectant, when the universe was full and pregnant, when the time was right, Christ was born. Christ was born at a date determined by the Father. Some of you may have put together wills or trusts for your children. If you've done that, you you may have gone through the process of selecting an age at which they would receive their inheritance. If you're like me, you were counseled uh, to set that age to actually somewhat of an older age so that were something to happen to you and you, whatever wealth or estate you have, when you pass it on, you usually don't want to pass that on fully to a 17-year-old. Because a 17-year-old, generally speaking, is not going to handle that amount of wealth, whatever it would be, well, if given to them suddenly. So when you set a, a will or a trust, you set a date for when your child might receive that inheritance, and often it's an older age. But the point is, it, it's a date set by the parents, right? Paul actually works on that theme in Galatians 4 2 says, the child is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul's talking about sons will receive their inheritance and they'll really become fully sons at a date set by their father. That's when they can receive the inheritance. The same is true with the world, that the Father set a date for when the world was ready and mature enough to receive the gift. So it's not by accident that Jesus' birth took place when it did. What was going on in the world when Jesus' birth took place? Well, we know it was in the midst of the Roman Empire. Not the biggest empire the world has ever known, but one of the most significant. Consider what's going on in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there was a new ease of communication. Greek had become the language that all the world spoke in the Roman Empire. So it was a time where the gospel message could be communicated widely with ease. Roman currency made trade possible, increasing travel and communication across nations and people. Roman roads and Roman peace, the Pax Romana, made it so that different nations worked together and you could travel from nation to nation under the Roman Empire And the Roman Empire had large urban centers where news traveled fast and cultural ideas were spread. It's almost as if the world was precisely ready under the Roman Empire for a message to spread quickly and easily. And consider the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was ready for a Messiah when Christ was born. They were anticipating a Savior. The people of Israel were under the thumb of the Roman Empire, looking for someone to come and save them. But they were also dispersed. The Israelites, the Jewish people, were dispersed and scattered about the Roman Empire. And what happened as they scattered? Well, as they scattered, they carried with them the the message of a monotheistic God, Yahweh. And they established synagogues, which would be wonderful starting places for the gospel to spread. And at this time, no prophet of God had spoken in Israel for hundreds of years. There was silence, there was anticipation, there was a readiness for the Savior to come. Spiritually, the world was ready. In the Roman Empire, there were rampant sins of slavery, sensuality, greed, luxurious living, violence, and worship of false gods and idols. The Roman world was a sinful place needing renewal. In contrast, 
Israel was a place of legalism. In response to their own sinful past, the religious leaders of Israel burdened people with laws and rules and traditions, trying to keep everybody in line. But they were laws and rules and traditions that no one could keep, not even themselves. In their quest for holiness, they set up impossible standards and became corrupt hypocrites. So in this Roman world, you had wild sinfulness. In the people of God, you had proud and hypocritical religious observance. The world was ready for a Savior who would bring true righteousness and mercy and forgiveness. In the fullness of time had come, Christ was born. The world was ready for a Savior. And I wonder this morning, are you ready for a Savior? We might ask each other, are you ready for Christmas? Do you have all gifts wrapped, plans made, travel accommodations made for? That's an important question. Far more important question, are you ready for the Messiah? Do you see your own need for a Savior? Your own inability to be holy? your heart ready in the fullness of time for a Messiah to come and save you. Is the world ready for the Messiah? We might look around and say, this world needs a Savior. We may look inside ourselves, we might look around and say, this world needs a Savior. Christmas reminds us that God knows when to send his son at just the right time. And he'll know when to send his son again to return and save us. When was Christ born? In the fullness of time, at the time appointed by the Father, when the world was ready. How was Christ born? That's the next question. How was Christ born? How is it that the Son of God came to live among us? Paul tells us in Galatians, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. It's important to note that it was specifically the Son who was sent by the Father. The Father didn't, was not the one born, the Spirit was not the one born, it was the Son who was the one born. As a man, if you'll allow me, I'm just going to wade into some deep waters of theology. Is that okay? Can we do that on Christmas Eve? (laughs) A little bit of deep theology. If this is not your thing, tune out. I'll let you know when you can come back and join us. Uh, But this is just fun stuff. Let's talk about the Trinity. For all of Christianity, Christians have affirmed that we have one God, one triune God. Our God is one. We don't worship multiple gods. We worship one God. We're monotheists. At the same time, we have also affirmed that that one God exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity. The triunity. One God in three persons, right? Okay, we got that. 
What makes the Son distinct from the Father and the Spirit distinct from the Son and so forth? Each person of the Trinity is fully God, right? Each person of the Trinity lacks nothing of Godhood and divinity within themselves. They are each fully God. They don't lack anything that would make them God. And yet somehow they're distinct from the other in that the Father is not the Son. So this is where our brain starts to break. We're trying to figure out, okay, how is it that they're distinct? What makes them different? And it seems to be somehow in, in the, the role and relationship that they have with each other. There's something about the Father that makes him the Father, and something about the Son that makes him the Son. Jesus himself kind of touches on this in one verse. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. In John 5, 26, it's one of my favorite verses because it just makes my brain break. I, I don't get it fully. But listen to what John 5, 26 says. This is Jesus talking. And in John 5, 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So the Father, Jesus says, has life in himself. What does it mean to have life in himself? He is self-existent. In and of his own self, he has life. Do you, do I, do we have life in ourselves? No. Why? We're dependent upon others to have life. I was born from two parents. If, if they did not exist, I would not exist. I don't have life in myself. I am not self-existent. I am not God. Neither are you. We are all dependent upon others, and we are all ultimately dependent on God to have life. But Jesus says the Father has life in himself. Okay, are you with me so far? The Father is self-existent. He has life in himself. Then Jesus says, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So, the Son, does he have life in himself? Is he self-existent? Does he depend on anybody else for life? No, he has life in himself, which means he is life, he can grant life, that he doesn't depend on anyone else for life. The Son, just like the Father, has life in himself. Cool, we got that. Both self-existent. But there's this word that Jesus uses there, where he says, the Father has granted the Son to have life himself. That's where my brain breaks. How can you have given self-existence? How is it that the Son has life in himself that is granted, given from the Father? The church historically has described this as the eternal generation of the Son. That for all eternity past, as long as God has been God, which is eternity, the Son has come forth from the Father. He's eternally generated from the Father. This does not mean that the Son was made or created, He doesn't have a beginning. 
But from the beginning, the Son emanates from. He is the radiance of. He is the word of the Father. That he proceeds from the Father. That somehow the Father sends forth for all time the Son from himself. You say, Aaron, what does that mean? And I say, I don't know. Ultimately, I'm not sure what the implications are. I think sometimes it's good just to wonder and be confused by God. Especially on Christmas. To try and wrap your head around the bigness and the wonder and the miracle of who God is. And say, man, I'm not sure I fully understand that. Reminds us of who we are and who God is. But at the very least, we can say that the Son is eternally God, eternally coming forth from the Father. He is self-existent and he emanates from. And then, here's where the miracle comes, the Son who eternally proceeds from the Father, now in time, becomes a part of creation. The Son, who has life in himself, somehow becomes a, a created being, becomes part of creation in the man Jesus Christ, who is fully God, sent forth by the Father, now born under woman. There is a divide between creator and creation. Either you're one or the other, right? Either you're creator, God. It's what makes him God. That he is the one who creates all things. Jesus is the one who creates all things. And either you're creator or you're creation. If you're creation, you're not God. And somehow, the Son has become both. He, who is God forever, has become part of creation, taking on humanity. He crossed that creator-creation divide and became one of us. There's a miracle we'll never wrap our heads around, never fully understand. You can try uh, kids tomorrow, or maybe this evening. I don't know when you do your Christmas unwrapping. But as you unwrap gifts, and maybe you have toys that you unwrap, you can ask yourself, are my toys alive? Hopefully you say no. Now, maybe they need batteries and they kind of come to life if they do. Um, But your toys are not living. There's a distinction between you and your toys. Are your toys human? No. Are your toys alive? No. But what if by some miracle you became like your toys? Maybe that's horrifying. That That might be scary. But I'm trying to wrap my head around, how do we wrap our heads around this miracle that God became one of us? It'd be like kids becoming one of their toys. It's the miracle of incarnation. The church actually had an easier time understanding Jesus as divine than it did understanding Jesus as human. If you study church history, you know the earliest heresies or uh, debates around Jesus Christ, what the church at first really had a hard time understanding is how is Jesus human? How is it that God become man? So some taught that maybe he was just like partially human or maybe Jesus is like a human spirit that kind of indwelled a, a body, like kind of a God in a bod type thing. Maybe Jesus is like some split personality with a divine side and a human side. Church really wrestled with how does it that we understand that Jesus is human? Because it couldn't wrap head around this idea, this ultimate miracle 
the eternal God becoming one of us. Not only to become one of us, but Galatians tells us he came under the law. Born of woman, born under the law. How many of you are willing to place yourself under the laws you make for others? Parents, I'll ask you. How many of you would be willing to live under the laws you make for your kids? What time is bedtime at your house? Maybe you'll say, I wish I could go to bed when my kids go to bed. But we make laws for our kids that we don't follow ourselves. Why? Well, those are laws for kids. We don't need them. They're not for us. We make rules for our kids. Why? To keep them safe, to protect them. We don't need to follow them because we're adults and we don't need those same kind of laws and commands. And that's exactly the point. God himself had made laws for his people, rules for his people. Why? Because his people were not perfect. The only reason you make laws is because people are not perfect. If people were perfect, you would not need laws. You would not need rules if people naturally lived perfectly. But God's people did not naturally live perfectly, so God gave them the law so that they might follow him. And even with the law, they failed to follow him. But God gave them the law so that they could follow him. Does Jesus need the law? Did Jesus Christ need to come under the law for his own sake? He was perfect. The law came from him as God. But he placed himself under the law. Why? Not because the law is for him. He placed himself under the law, being fully righteous for us. And that gets to the last point. Why was Christ born? When was Christ born? In the fullness of time, the time God the Father appointed. How was Christ born? Christ was born, sent forth from the Father, born of a woman, born under the law. Why was Christ born? Galatians 4 5 tells us there are two reasons Christ was born. And the whole reason Christ was born simply this to save you and make you his. Galatians 4 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. There are two reasons, according to Galatians 4 5, that Christ was born. The first to redeem those who are under the law. What does it mean to redeem something? What does redemption mean? It means to buy something or to buy something back to set it free. Redemption is to purchase something to liberate it. What is the ultimate example of redemption in the Old Testament? the Exodus story. God purchased his people to set them free. He sent plagues and punishments 
upon Egypt so that Israel and his people would be freed. He redeemed them, liberated them. He set his people free from captivity. It is the great picture of redemption in Scripture until Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to redeem his people. How did his people need redemption? What do we need to be redeemed from? Do we need to be redeemed from captivity in the Roman Empire? That's what the Israelites were hoping for. But what did we really need redemption from? Captivity under the law. He came to redeem those who were under the law. How is it that God's people were under the law? What was the purpose of the law? It's to show God's people how they could be holy and righteous. This is how you live a holy, perfect, God-honoring life. Who could do that? Could anybody live under the law perfectly? No. And at that moment, when you can't live under the law perfectly, what do you become? A lawbreaker. And now the law is not a gift. It's a curse. It's a weight hanging around your neck because you know you can't keep it. Israel could not keep the law. We couldn't keep the law. The whole story of Scripture is one of God's people proving over and over again they cannot keep the ethics and the laws of God. We're under the law, and though it is perfect, it's a curse for us because we're not perfect and we can't follow it. And we say, well, that's not fair. God gave us a law we can't follow. We're hopeless. And God knows. God knows we're hopeless under the law, so what did he do? He sent his son to fulfill the law on our behalf. I once heard of identical twins who often took each other's tests. One was better in some subjects. One was better in other subjects. So they would take each other's tests and, and thereby raise their scores for each other. They would get credit for somebody else's work. This is what Christ has done for us. He has taken the test for us. He has lived a perfect life where we cannot. And we get credit for his work. And on the cross, he got the credit for our work. By living a fully righteous life, he passed the test for us. By dying on the cross, he took our failure on his shoulders. Christians have called this the great exchange. We get his righteousness. He gets our sin. 
I don't know what the most unfair trade is in sports history. You can debate that amongst yourself. I might say Wayne Gretzky being traded from the Oilers to the Kings. You can think about that in your own favorite sports. When you were growing up, maybe you had siblings who tried to make unfair trades with you. If you had older siblings, you probably experienced this. I'll give you five M&Ms for that one candy bar. You're getting five. I'm only getting one. I know it's a king size, but you're getting five M&Ms. You know. There's never been a more unfair trade than this. We get his righteousness. He took our sin. He redeemed us from under the law. And he has done more. It would be incredibly gracious, um, undeserved, merciful of God if he had just saved us from sin. But he has done more than that. He has done more than just saved us from sin. He has made us his family. What does Paul say? To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not only have we been redeemed, here's the second purpose Christ is born, so that we might receive adoption as sons, that we might be called sons of God. In other words, we are made God's family, not only saved, but brought near to him. Uh, The context all around Galatians tells us what this means, that we have been given adoption. In verse 7, Paul says we're no longer slaves but sons. Because we've been adopted by God, we're not only people who have to live dutifully under God and obey his rules. No, no, that's what a slave does. We are sons, which means we have a relationship with God. We can call him father. We have a place in his home that we are welcome in his house. That, Like the prodigal, we always have a seat at the father's table because we receive adoption as sons. And if we're children of God, we too, we have an inheritance with him. We have an inheritance that we are heirs of God that we will receive the inheritance that God has set for us. And what is that inheritance? We will inherit the world. We have a new creation. Heaven is waiting for us because we are sons of God. We are heirs of what he has prepared and is waiting for us. And as adopted children through, we have his spirit. Verse 6 tells us that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. We have the very same spirit that indwelled Jesus Christ. We have that same spirit in us. If we are in Christ, we are his temple, his home. And God dwells with us. He has made his home in us and with us. And if we have his spirit, if we are his sons, then we can cry to God saying, Abba, Father. We don't just call him a distant God, uh, one who is far from us. No, we call him Father. My kids, it doesn't happen often, but if they come in the middle of the night and waking me up because they need something, I listen and I care for them. Why? Because I'm their father. And when kids need their father, a loving father responds and cares for them. We have a loving father who has made us his, who welcomes us to come and go to him and pray, Abba, Father. We're not just saved from sin and judgment. We are also adopted as sons and daughters of God, made his family. This is what Christ has done for us. We ask three crucial Christmas questions, and then we have our answers. 
When was Christ born? Christ was born over 2,000 years ago when the world was ready, when we were most desperate for Messiah to save God's people from our lawless sin and our religious hypocrisy. And the world was ready to hear the good news. Christ was born. How was Christ born? Christ was born as the eternal Son sent forth by the Father, fully divine, to be born fully human by the Virgin Mary, to live a perfectly righteous life under the law. Why was Christ born? Christ was born to redeem people from bondage and judgment under the law, to save us from sin, and give us his righteousness, and to make us sons and daughters of the Father. Son of God, born a man to save the children of God, all because the Father loves us. So we celebrate on Christmas Day. Would you pray with me? My Father and God, we thank you for the birth of Christ this morning. There are mysteries in it we'll never fully wrap our heads around. We can talk about it, Lord, but to, um, to fully understand it, I guess, is your prerogative and yours alone, but you communicate um, truth to us that we have some understanding of what it is you've done. That God himself took on flesh and humility, coming under the very creation and the laws he made, um, not because your son needed to, but because he wanted to. To free us from sin, from our law-breaking, and to make us your children. Help us to celebrate this fact, Lord, that we are sons and daughters of God in Christ. We have a Father who loves us. We praise your name. Amen.